Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Whether we've been creating elementary stone tools, traveling into space or developing our own artificial intelligences, since the beginning of time, humans have been fascinated by just how our world works. Design thinking has exploded into the 21st century workplace. It's a methodology designed to put humans at the centre of our work. This series explores where it came from and where it's going. From methodology to a philosophy for life, design thinking is changing the world. That's Richard Adams and I'm Sam Fry. We have come a long way on this design thinking series. We've learned where it's come from, how it's used in businesses, and how it's impacting design education. In this series finale, we will cover the future of design thinking and how it offers us a design for life. Act 1. Democratisation With more people than ever in their workplace learning about human-centred design, we're facing new opportunities and challenges. The democratisation of design offered by design thinking can lead us to asking who is in charge. If these skills are available to everyone, how do we design collaboratively and at scale? Is it even right that everyone should be involved? We asked Lisa A. Armour, a design student at the Royal College of Art, this question, and she spoke about some of the ideas raised by Alice Rawsthorne, a British design critic and author of Hello World, Where Design Meets Life. I do think design is something that anyone can participate in. She sort of, in her book, talks about different instances of people who aren't professional designers and how how they've sort of incorporated design into their way of doing a certain project or enterprise. And I think in general, it, it is a really positive thing that also businesses are looking at design as a way to really make new things, really solve problems in a new way. I think the way that it's been implemented has, maybe it didn't really meet the hype. Lisa believes that businesses should embrace user-centred design, but also develop their understanding of the way that people's individuality shapes design too. Essentially, if this other side of design, the more the subjective aspect of design thinking were to gain more purchase and if people were to really see those two as a set I think it it would become a lot more yeah I I think seeing those two as a set and really trying to get a good balance would really achieve the or like get us closer to this idea of like democratizing design and for that to really become part of people's practices um, whether it's in the corporate context or whatever. Lisa also believes that as more people are involved in design, they should learn to critique their own thinking and design process. If we are to talk about sort of design in a more democratic context and how essentially anyone can participate in it, I think even the people that don't see themselves as designers could probably also start to think about what is what is their design thinking and I think it's just sort of stepping back and thinking, okay, what are the tendencies in the way I think? What are the tendencies in the way I try to come up with an idea and to apply that to a context? That's all, all it really is. I mean, I say that's all it, all it really is, but it is really deep because 
I guess in my dissertation, I really explored how my way of thinking and my way of interpreting the world is connected to actually quite concrete events in my life and also like the kind of training I received. For example, you know, we, we think about sketching as a really fundamental design activity and I don't feel like a lot of us are able to articulate exactly why it's so fundamental apart from the fact that, yeah, it's good for visualisation. But, I mean, do you have to just draw well in order to be a designer? And I sort of made the point that actually sketching is is not only training for like the actual activity, but it's also a training for the mind and a training to think in a certain way. So I think, yeah, just trying to make those connections between like who you are, what you can do and how that impacts whatever you feed into your, uh, whatever your, your contribution is to a project. There may be some uncertainty about the design thinking approach in some circles, but there is an agreement that democratizing design is a good thing. Here is designer and educator, Dr. Yankee Lee. Actually, I think that's a very important book. And I think Professor Ezio Manzini from Milan Design School, which is one of the very traditional design school with all the beautiful things they make. And he, uh, we call him the godfather of design for social innovation. And he's published a book in 2015. And the title is fascinating. It's Design When Everyone Designs. So it's the introduction of social innovation. And I think that is part of the democratic design process is that was my question is how can we designers as a professional that can do something like that? But instead of like we close our studio, the studio work by ourselves, thinking the world is like this, but why don't we teach the other to design with us? And then, but then, then the problem will come back is we need to refine what design is from our perspective and from the professional perspective. So can we do more about framing new ideas, like capturing exciting moments, reimagine the opportunities, about um, understanding coping methods by people, or even questioning the world more? I'm totally with design thinking. I think many more people need to know about design thinking and they need to know about design. It's almost like a medical doctor. Everyone sounds like they know about medical doctors, what how they practice, but no one knows about what designer practice is. So more people understand design is necessary, but I think it's more about design profession. As a profession, how can we equip ourselves to, to get that ready and then make it happen and be positive? So I don't feel fear, I feel hopes, but the fear is like, are we ready? Um, that's why I think for me, education is two-way. So it's not just about design students, but it's to be the citizens. And together we design a better world. I think that is important. Of course, what Yankee is saying is that if we want to design a better world to have social innovation, then we need to do that together. But what does that look like? That's what's coming next. Two, ethics. We talked in part one about the democratization of design. With more people designing, many see the future of design as becoming more ethical. Here's Joseph Pacal, a designer on the Royal College of Arts Global Innovation Design course. I 100% agree with Mike Montero or Victor Papanek, who basically say that everyone is a designer, right? I think we can agree 
as a designer to designer. The design is not a noun. Design is a verb. It is a function. It is not a state. So anyone who's touching our product, who's a manager, who's a technologist, who's um, sort of having that level of input or an engineer is designing on a daily basis. So sort of like my biggest hope for anyone who's, who's building products or making, who's, who's a creator of anything, is to consider the ethical com- consequences and the implications that whatever we make, we put out in the world, sort of might have, right? We create technologies and technologies we and things that go into the environment and the environment ultimately shapes human beings and shapes human behavior and change culture completely. I think it was Postman who's, who's been arguing that any technological change is ecological and irreversible, right? Um, that a new technology gets introduced, it essentially changes humanity forever. So like my biggest hope would be for, for the design process to basically adopt that lens of responsibility and ethics a little bit more um, proactively uh, as part of the design process so that we can actually have the foresight and anticipate what might be the consequences and impact of the things we make on society as a whole. I think by now we probably like agree or starting to agree as a world that yes, we are an, an interconnected, single integrated planetary system that you know the, the borders that we paint on in sand are actually more artificial than they aren't. <laughs> and so many of the I think it's just like bubbled up to to the surface now that so many actions that people take in the United States have dramatic consequences you know, in Indonesia, for example, and vice versa, right? I think there's there's sort of like a really exciting direction uh, in the future for design and technologists and also the public to to take. It's like, it's, it's more of a question, how do we design the world for ourselves to, to cohabit and to sustain human race going forward rather than just think about, you know, how do I make a cool iPhone case? Right. Or how do I make a fun app that puts a deer filter on your face? Right. It's sort of this the sort of question of what is it? Why am I actually making it? How is this contributing to to the future of humanity? Because it's sort of the question of like we're not really individuals of the present, but we're all essentially members of history, I'd say. And whatever we put out there is is it, it, it can be highly incidental in the sense of, oh, we've just created it as part of a design process in my company that is driven by some sort of a mission or there is an opportunity, economic opportunity we're looking to explore. Maybe completely incidental, but it is very likely highly consequential. So thinking about these consequences as part of the design process, I think, is something that we should really adopt uh, going down, down the line. Joseph is not the only designer that believes ethics is becoming much more important in the design process. Pretty much all of the designers that we spoke to did. Diana Kangiza is up next. She is a designer on the Innovation Design Engineering course at the Royal College of Art. She recently wrote about just this. Actually, I just submitted my dissertation, which was how can we design emerging technology ethically? And it's a good research question, also personally for my own practice, you know, um, but also I think it's a bit linked with what you're saying, because when you when you ask me what's my opinion on these, you know, big organizations on 
you know, making uh, everyone be like a designer and everything. I feel like as, as humans, we are designers in a way, you know, uh, if you think of the first tools we ever had, right. And, and, and how we, how we co- um, cooperate and how we um, survive, let's say in, in the world. I think we have so many products right now. We are over producing products in, in, in the, in the industry, in the world, but we, maybe we need more innovation when it comes to system. So how to actually make things, how to actually make technology, how to actually make design resilient, sustainable, ethical, inclusive. Diana approaches this by asking herself a series of ethical questions. How can I ensure that my design will only serve for the good? Or have I taken all the consequences when, when designing? Or what if my innovation takes a negative shift in the market and gets in the wrong hands? So I, I asked myself these questions. Good for they are good for my practice, right? To to ensure ethical practices in my own uh, design. But then, how do I actually do it? It's good to ask yourself. But okay, how do you actually ensure uh, an ethical framework and an ethical design thinking for for your outcome, right? After you put your let's say your baby out there in the world, it's not in your hands, right? But then is it then then I'm also asking who's at fault if if it's get used in an unethical way or so there's a lot of questions that I've asked myself as you can see uh for for my own practice but also for my dissertation. You see, Diana believes that ethical design can only be achieved through ensuring inclusivity. Inclusivity by design and inclusivity in design should be considered. So in the design process, make sure you're inclusive not only by the outcome. But is design thinking really being used to interrogate these big ethical wicked problems? Jessica Tremblay is the enterprise design thinking community catalyst at IBM. But she also has another role as a designer for racial equity in design. It's a really exciting space to see how it's being applied to, you know, these modern racism has been around for a while. Right. But we're all keenly aware of it, especially over the summer and since we've been in, in COVID times. But it's it's really interesting to see how it's being applied in a modern day sense to some of these problems and really snuffing out some of the systemic inequities that have been you know built and baked into our, our systems. And especially here in the United States, one of the really exciting places that I've been just keeping an eye on is is ethical research practices and looking into design research, you know, as as a way of you, you gotta you gotta lift up those user insights some way, some shape, or some form, right? But making sure that you're doing that in a safe and ethical and and in just good way, uh, especially for the people that you're researching. I mean, some of these areas can get a little gnarly, right? And you want to make sure that you're taking care of the people that you're you're speaking to, that you're interviewing, and that you're researching. So, um, one of my favorite figures in this space is is a is a woman Alba and Villamil. Definitely check her out on Twitter. She's she's got some great new uh, research practices out there that. It's it's all about thinking about what are the oppressive ethical beliefs that are guiding our work, you know, underneath it. And what are the refusals, like literally the refusals that we need to put in place in order to make sure we're doing that. So this concept of doing no harm, uh, another concept of, and I'm using air quotes, inclusion, right, of what we're calling inclusion nowadays 
and thinking about is it more profitable to quote unquote include marginalized folks rather than actually fixing the problem itself. And that seems to be what's been done, you know, over the past few years. It's there's many examples out there. Um, and one of one of the examples that she definitely highlights is the hashtag Airbnb while black. And Google it. It's really interesting. Instead of looking at the folks who were doing the harm, they looked at the folks that were harmed. So instead of seeing the behaviors, for instance, that white racist folks were, were using to, yeah, to use against uh, marginalized people, they instead focused on the problems that, that Black folks were, were incurring uh, while hashtag Airbnb while black but definitely check it out it's really interesting space it gets a little uncomfortable right looking into it because it's still like i think it's a space that we're still trying to get comfortable with in talking about and in wanting to use the right language around it and i'm still myself i'm practicing you know and as as a white woman in this space i'm constantly tripping over myself i mean I, I will cause harm. I know that, but I, I need to learn how to apologize when I do that and how to learn from my, my mistakes and, and move on. So, and I think that's where we are right now. It's, it's looking at, at ethical research practices is, is a great way for us to start those conversations, right? Because research and human centered design, that's what, that's what it's all based in. Um, the people in essence that we're designing and developing and creating and, yeah, that we're, that we're making making progress and products for in the end. This is good to hear, right? So are companies already prioritizing their work based on ethical considerations? Here's Amanda Foreman, business designer at The Zone. I would say yes and no. I think you are. we are starting to hear about companies that are thinking more about society as a whole, about workers and and how much we pay people and what is our environmental impact and you know is this good for society from you know lots of more companies are becoming very political you know there's I think you're seeing a lot more sort of value statements in companies these days but there's so many companies that aren't I mean like for those like what 15 companies that you hear that are like advocating for climate change there's probably like 500 that aren't and so I think Yes and no. And I think that that's the responsibility that we have as as leaders in business is to be those agents of change. Um, because I think that businesses really drive consumer behavior in so many ways. Joseph Pacau explains why it can be hard for organizations to predict the impact of their decisions. He paraphrases Frederick Pohl. A, a good sci-fi writer is able to envision the car, but a great sci-fi writer is able to envision the traffic jam. Yes, you give them, you, you give people faster means of transport, but again, it is a technology that, that revolutionized the fabric of society. It's a highly ecological, ecologically consequential thing uh, that gave birth to suburbs and highways and highways that split neighborhoods as means of sort of a post-segregation segregation that also, you know, had tremendous consequences on our climate and so on. So there are lots of things that I think would need to be considered. And again, design is not a, a, a sort of set in stone physics type discipline that would really have sort of foundational tenets um, that, that would remain stable and 
So yes, if people become design thinkers, that is great. And I think it's a really welcome change. And if people become more creative and open to exploration and open and more empathetic towards users and more aware of the fact that technology is, for example, one component and that that it's okay to rebuild things, those are all great things. But we're definitely going to face again the situation where design moves forward and then we're going to be looking at, okay, like what's the next step? How do we help you think in the new way? So that's the next challenge and opportunity to continue to embrace design thinking in businesses, but also to make sure that products are developed inclusively and ethically. Next, in the final act of this series, we ask, what is the future of design thinking? Three, the future of design thinking. Robert Hookman Jr. is the senior innovation strategist at Tangible UX. He believes that the future of design thinking is about being really clear about the value of this way of working. Everything about design thinking is a good idea. It's a good practice. Uh, I think that the, the thing it's really just missing is provable outcomes, is the, uh, is the attachment of the effort to the effects that it had. At the tier of leadership where people are writing checks and funding these design thinking efforts inside of companies, what they want to know is what they got for their investment and what's the ROI of design thinking. And so for design thinking to succeed and to stick and to evolve, it absolutely has to be tied to those metrics over time. And if it doesn't, it will fade away and it will eventually disappear. But if we do a good job, if we do a good rigorous and and consistent job of attaching our efforts to business effects, design thinking will become a household term. It will be on on, on the tip of the tongue of every CEO and every CTO in in the world uh, because it will be the in-demand skill, the the in-demand methodology that will enable them to move forward in a customer-conscious but also very business-focused way. Amanda Foreman agrees with this. For her, the companies that will win are the ones that can demonstrate that they solve problems. But certainly, I think, software products and and all of that, the ones that are not human-centered and don't actually solve a particular need for society or for the consumer just aren't necessarily, they're not going to survive. Like, because I think people are getting so good at designing intuitive products and services for people. Like if people don't, if companies aren't intuitive and customer centric, like they're just not going to be able to compete. And that's the, you know, the differentiator now is like, what's the, what's the experience around a product and service and how I interact with it that really makes a company potentially successful. Joseph Picall explains how it can be difficult for companies to make a change towards solving problems, especially ethical ones. So when we're talking about being maybe a bit more reflective about our products and about our services that we provide and sort of being able to then revisit them more often, it's probably quite difficult for a giant business that has, you know, 80, that serves 80 markets around the world and and turns around 37 billion every year to change something as banal as a we don't want to use plastic packaging because the investment is, is the, the you know the hurdle to, to changing that is so huge for them it's, it's a tremendous difficulty so changing those organizations i think is, is, is quite a quite a high hurdle 
But on the other hand, like we're seeing there's some interesting things happening. Jessica Tremblay explains how she is just excited to see design thinking being adopted in more industries. So this is where it gets really exciting and where I actually like to look external. So now that people have seen IBM use it and use it successfully, it's, okay, what are other companies doing and what are they learning, right? And it's not just other companies, it's other industries as well. So where IBM, it's very enterprise, business, right? Finance and and all the good things. I now am seeing, you know, smaller startups here locally in Austin, Texas. I went to a an anti-racism uh, course over the weekend and one of the first sessions was this this young woman having a design thinking session and I was so excited I was like finally I get to you know work with someone else uh, who's not at IBM who is you know leading me through a workshop for a change right instead of me being the facilitator and it was just it was really exciting to see like how a lot of her methods were very similar to what we use I think we're seeing it being applied to different contexts right but more than this Jessica is encouraged to see the context that people are working in is not just for business benefit. She has seen teams begin to use design thinking to solve global problems and ethical issues. But now we're seeing applied to to current, you know, current problems that are that are affecting us as people right now. So there was this push and this, you know, this, this big wanting from people, from humans to want to give back, to want to do better, to want to give back to the world and, and in some way, shape or form. And design thinking was a great way for them to be able to do that. So um, you saw people just jump at the chance to be able to help, you know, co-create solutions for helping with COVID-19 relief, um, whether it's, you know, bringing, bringing uh, the vaccine distribution problem to light, creating solutions for that, anything surrounding that. And then pairing it with, you know, we've got in, internally at IBM, we've got call for code challenges. So if you integrate the call for code challenges, but put design thinking at the very beginning of that, you know, started starting to create solutions based on user research and then going through and iterating through rapid prototyping. I mean, it's going to, with the amount of people doing it, you're going to have some pretty great solid ideas that are going to come out of that. So there is hope. We've learned a lot in this series. We learned what design thinking is, where it came from, and how it became an industry. We learned about the key principles like co-creation, empathy, iteration, and the importance of value. We learned about design education, what people are taught in design schools, and we heard stories from those designers. We heard about how the design industry is skeptical about design thinking but that it values the fact that more people are learning about design. And we explored the future of design thinking and why ethics and inclusivity are so, so important. But mainly, we began to understand why design thinking has become so valued by organisations and to us as customers, as we are receiving more useful products and services. And it's not a flash in the pan. Design thinking is without doubt here to stay. Even if it iterates and evolves and changes, it will at its heart still be putting people at the centre of design. Design thinking is changing the world. Let's hope that we can make it a better one.
This series was written, recorded and produced by Sam Fry and Richard Adams. Thank you to Alex Stanek, Amanda Foreman, Diana Kangheiser, Hal Wirtz, Jessica Tremblay, Joseph Picarl, Lisa Ayama, Robert Huckman, Stiliana Minkowska, Tassie Allen Thompson and Dr Yankee Lee for being interviewed. All music from this podcast is available on a Creative Commons licence, downloaded at freemusicarchive.org. Artists include Alex Productions, Circus Marcus, Croanda and Yazar. Thank you for listening to the series. To hear more from us in the future, why not subscribe to our normal podcast feed? Also, go on, be generous, give us a five-star rating. And of course you can find out more at technique.create-hub.co.uk Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.